This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird and Todd Pruitt. And today we have a special event. We actually have somebody on the show who's here by popular demand. We've had at least, I think, over the last five years, three emails (laughs) demanding that this man uh, come on. All from uh, uh, an IP address somewhere in Michigan. but uh, (laughs) Indiana. Indiana, yeah. It's Daryl Hart, who is uh, a teacher of history at Hillsdale College in Michigan, the author of numerous excellent and thought-provoking books, and a blogger extraordinaire when it comes to, how can we put this, generally speaking, winding up the right people. (laughs) And we want to talk to Daryl today about uh, his area of special interest, and that is Jay Gresham Machen. So it's great to have you with us, Daryl. Thanks, Carl and crew. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thanks for coming on. Well, Daryl, I want to start with a very the pressing moment question of the day. Twofold question. Would Gresham Machen have signed the Nashville Statement? <laughs> and why haven't you signed it? Are you some kind of pro-gay radical or something? <laughs> yeah, we were so. told that he would sign it <laughs> yeah. if he were alive. No, seriously, would Jay Gresham Machen have signed the Nashville <sighs> Statement? I don't think so. I mean, I do resist questions about what Machen would do because I'm <laughs> – I'm not the reincarnation as much as I might like to think I am. Actually, I'm closer to H.L. Mencken than J. Gresham Machen because I was born three weeks after H.L. Mencken died. Now, you think about that. But um, 
Channeling the spirit. But I, I don't think he would have, not simply because I wouldn't sign it either. But I mean, I think for one reason, if you look at what our standards, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism teach about sex, it's, it's even more um, in your face in a way than the Nashville Statement. And we already have that sort of teaching. So, I mean, I think part of the way I understand Mitch is that he was a committed Presbyterian and chose to work as much as possible. Westminster Seminary, an exception. Yes, the independent board, an exception, but tried to work through Presbyterian channels. And the Nashville Statement doesn't reflect that. I mean, when he was asked to join some parachurch organizations like the World Christian Fundamentals Association, he declined. He did speak for them. I can't remember. There may have been a couple of other organizations that he was asked to join and did not. He was even asked to testify at the Scopes trial, but mm. declined kind of somewhat ambiguously. He said he had another engagement and he wasn't an expert on the Old Testament. So anyway, I don't think Machen would have signed. And I wouldn't sign it for similar reasons because I, I think I'm already covered by what I've confessed or professed in the Westminster standards. And I'm also just a little... I mean, I do think there's a culture war dimension to it, so the critics are right about that. But I also think a lot of the people who sign statements about the monuments, Confederate monuments also are – there's a culture war moment to that, and somehow that doesn't seem to qualify. That (laughs) They're doing it in truth, and the other people are just trying to wind up the gays or something. And I think both sides are trying to wind up – or both groups are trying to wind up other people. And I'm not against winding up people, but um, (laughs) – We've noticed, yeah. (laughs) But I I understatement. I don't think this is one I want really to get involved with. So Yeah. Now, uh, Daryl, one of the books we would love people to read is Defending the Faith, which is your biography of J. Gresham Machen. And and it's really excellent. And and you'll hear – listeners, you'll hear a little bit more about the book in a minute. But I I do want to – Folks who, who read you, and there are a lot of us who, who have benefited from reading you, n- know that you have a, a special place in your heart for H.L. Mencken. And um, I, I recently finished uh, your very interesting, if I could call it a religious biography on Mencken. If you don't know who H.L. Mencken was, he was one of the fathers of contemporary journalism and a well-known and very enthusiastic atheist. And so here's this series of religious biographies and the volume that that our guest contributes is, interestingly enough, on an atheist. Kind of tell me what you were thinking that and why do you believe that that was a good subject for that series? Well, my first encounter with Mencken was something he wrote two pieces about Machen, and you've yeah. got to sort of think hard to keep those two names straight. Right. Yeah. Each man born within a year of each other, actually, Mencken a year older than Machen, both men from Baltimore. It's not apparent that they knew each other. One of Mencken's, excuse me, there I did it, Machen's <laughs> in-laws was trying to set up a meeting between the men, but it never happened, as far as I know. Um, but Mencken wrote about Machen in 1931 in the American Mercury and complimented Machen for opposing prohibition. Not mm-hmm. to say that Machen favored right. drunkenness, but he he got in some hot water with Presbyterians in the 20s over his op- opposition to the church's calls for taking a stand against prohibition. And then Mencken also wrote an obituary of Machen in 1937, mm-hmm. both very favorable. So, right. so even though Mencken was mocked religion, I actually think he did it in a good-natured way. Yeah. I, I think the, he wasn't good-natured about William Jennings Bryan, but otherwise, right. or Woodrow Wilson, but otherwise he was pretty good-natured about it. 
And I just think he's one of the most charming writers of the 20th century, at least. He's an American treasure. You're now speaking to the newly installed president of the Macon Society. There you go. You can feel the power. Um, (laughs) And so I just think Macon actually, he was, the part of the argument of the book is that he was, Christianity framed him, whether he liked it or not. He grew up in a society where Protestantism was dominant. It created problems for him when it came to things he edited and wrote, and he got in trouble with censors. It also came between him and a good drink for a time, although it was fairly easy to get bootleg alcohol hmm. during during Prohibition. So he, he felt pinched by the Protestants, but he also was amused. And, and one of the, at the Mencken Day proceedings last Saturday in Baltimore, one of the the guys who's a member of the Mencken Society does an impersonation of Mencken. He did a little, did a little presentation and he has, Mencken had these jokes about the different Protestant denominations that I'm convinced my students wouldn't get because they don't know enough about the different traditions behind the Protestant denominations. I mean, it's all I can do to try to explain the difference between mainline Protestants and evangelical Protestants. But Mm. to think that Mencken could master Unitarianism and Episcopalians and Baptists is really quite something. And it's not as if he was a new atheist and said, ooh, these people give me the creeps. He actually kind of reveled in it and ran with it. So. Yeah, so it's interesting. And I, I'll, I'll mention the name of the book. I don't think I mentioned, but the name of Dr. Hart's book is uh, Damning Words. And it's it's a fascinating read. It's very interesting, but it's also a really fun read as well. So my, and my question is, you mentioned uh, Mencken's obituary for Machen, and it's really quite moving. What was it about Machen that Mencken seemed to respect? Well, I think a part of it was they were both naysayers. And he saw in Machen, an ally in mocking the Protestant establishment. You could put, and also, but I think they agreed a lot on the nature of progressivism in America, mm-hmm. the, the it, political movement, but also pro- Protestants are very much involved in that. And Woodrow Wilson it, is prime yeah, example there. Yeah. yeah, and I actually gave a talk at Mencken Day on the title was uh, When America Was Great and Baltimore Knew Better, and I actually... <laughs> weave together Machen and Mencken in that. And if people want to, you know, keep an eye out for Mencken-iana, the, the publication that's dedicated <laughs> to Mencken, it's going to appear in there. But I actually, I actually like the talk a lot and I hope to give it again. And I think there's something to the kind of progressive spirit that was typical of liberal mainline Protestants in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that you had somebody of Machen's stature at one of the older, you know, established institutions like Princeton Seminary then being willing to take this on. I think that was part of the appeal of Mencken. And I also think Mencken was just a straight shooter and, and Machen was also a straight shooter. And they would have, at the end of the day, disagreed about the ultimate truths. But the proximate ones, I think there would have been a, a lot of agreement, especially politically. I think they were both kind of states' rights libertarians, which, you know, means they're white supremacists, right? Okay. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned their politics, and I think that that's one thing that a lot of conservatives today might be surprised to hear about Machen. Can you share with us, you know, what his sure. political views were? Well, it's not as if it was a well-worked-out theory, but he was a lifelong Democrat. He did belong to organizations that we would call libertarian like the Sentinels of the Republic, under whose auspices he spoke before Congress in 1926 in opposition to the Federal Department of Education, to the formation of it. I'd like to think that Machen's testimony was responsible for postponing that 
department for another 50 years. It didn't come mm-hmm. until 1978, which I think would place it under the Carter administration. Yep. But he also was, I mean, he was an advocate in addition to his views about whether the federal government should have more power, which is what most libertarians oppose. But he was also an advocate for languages in public and private schools. And there were a number of legislative initiatives at state levels in the 20s to remove the teaching of foreign languages in public and private schools because there was an effort to try to Americanize the immigrants. And Machen himself wanted Latin and Greek taught in public schools. And of course, the immigrants weren't speaking those languages, but he saw the connection between that and a kind of cultural diversity. So I I would say that Machen was on the side of cultural diversity, and that was something also that progressives were trying not to do. They were trying to consolidate national life as much as possible so that America could be great um, and could be a player in world affairs, which is what did happen. Two world wars will do that for you, mm-hmm. but but still, that's sort of a flavor of some of his his politics. He was very much opposed, for instance, also another instance during World War One to the draft. He he didn't think that the United States should force people into, to serve in the military. Another part of his libertarian outlook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how would you distinguish Machen from fundamentalism, Darrell? Well, it goes back to the Nashville. St- statement, as it were. I mean, Machen, I think, really tried to be a Presbyterian (laughs) first, and fundamentalists were right on the fundamentals, but Machen, I think, understood that Christianity involved a lot more than five points or nine points or 13 points, and that those points were very well covered in the confessions of the Presbyterian Church, but he also saw, I think, the importance of Presbyterian Church government and fundamentalism largely existed in a lot of parachurch organizations and affiliations among Protestants from different denominations. So Machen was a committed Presbyterian, and that was his first allegiance. So I think that's a big difference. I think it's something that too often historians have obscured in studying fundamentalists. They kind of lump all conservatives together under the category of fundamentalism And Carl, you likely know the debates about lumpers and splitters when it comes to historiography, but I am clearly on the side of splitters. And I think it just makes history a lot more interesting if you do recognize the distinctness of each person. I'm wondering, on the issue of fundamentalism, the fundamentalism of the 1920s, the movement to kind of define a set of fundamentals, oratory and and those, those gentlemen, it's not the same brand of fundamentalism as what oftentimes we have known here in the last few decades. What would be some of the, just briefly, a couple of distinguishing marks between the fundamentalism of, of Machen's era, some of which he he had some affinity with, some of which, and the fundamentalism that we so often know in evangelicalism today? Right. Well, I mean, I think when I teach fundamentalism in the 20s, I want students to think about what happened in denominations like the Northern Presbyterians and the Southern Baptists. And there were real Mm -hmm. issues there about centralization of of denominational structures and whether those structures or those officials were becoming increasingly liberal. And there is an ecumenical movement that goes back to the end of the Civil War that Protestants were trying to joined together to preserve a Christian America or to Christianize America that I think is synonymous with the social gospel, this mm-hmm. this ecumenical movement. It's also synonymous with progressivism. And 
people in these denominations like Machen, but also some Southern Baptists recognize that, wait a minute, the more we go into this ecumenical goo, we're going to lose what makes us distinct as either Baptist or Presbyterian. So that's one part of it. But then the other part of it is, in some ways, perhaps more analogous to what's gone on recently, which is the political front of creation, teaching creation in public schools and the Scopes trial, and William Jennings Bryan being at the forefront of that. And actually, I think Bryan gets a bad rap, especially from Mencken. Mencken wrote his most vicious piece about about Bryan after Bryan died. But I mean, there, there really were complicated issues involved in the Scopes trial about whether states can make laws governing these things, what parents can expect from school boards, the nature of democracy, but also um, the textbook that Scopes himself was using taught eugenics. Hmm. And Brian was actually fairly critical of eugenics, and, and he's received credit for being opposed to that. And so it's it's a much more complicated thing than just the rubes in Dayton versus yeah. the sophisticates up in Baltimore or New York or wherever. So, but anyway, that is a political side to it, but it didn't take on a national political campaign the way, say, the moral majority formed by Jerry Falwell and others in 1979 did, where it became much more a part of a political party. I mean, mm. Brian himself, of course, was Secretary of State under Wilson, resigned when America entered World War One. Brian himself ran for presidency three times and lost. So it's not as if fundamentalism didn't have a political side, but it wasn't as organized as a political movement as or a lobbying group the way that the moral majority, it seems to me, was an other, you know, Christian coalition and other evangelical actors since then. Does that make sense? Yes, very much. Yeah. I wanted to ask you just for the, the regular ordinary Christian today, like how would learning about Machen and reading his work help the layperson today? Well, I think if if I can use my own example, um, which of course it has to be in some ways, it's mm-hmm. this is all sort of personal. But <laughs> I think what was striking for me reading Machen the first go round was to hear him criticize Abraham Lincoln. Now, I was a schoolboy, grew up in the North, and, you know, we got Lincoln's birthday off. We got Washington's birthday off. They used to be two separate holidays. Woohoo. Yep. <laughs> um, now we've just merged them into one long three or four day weekend. And of course, I just was brought up with the narrative that the Civil War kind of culminated the founding moment, and this was a great triumph of of the United States. And I'm not trying to – I think Lincoln was an incredible president to keep things together and to do what he did. I mean, I think he had incredible skill in that. But if you think about what the South lost and what the states may have lost, and you think about the, the founding and what – say, a foreign policy of the founders as well. I wasn't thinking about this, but so Machen was an entry point into a different view mm-hmm. of the United States and its politics and the place of Christianity in it. And in some ways, reading Machen alerted me to the difference between the church and the nation and that the two can be distinguished and they have different ends and purposes and that sometimes America hasn't necessarily been on the right side of things. And that shouldn't surprise your colleague there, Mr. Truman, who is, you know, you know, one of on the other side of, of 1776, I presume, although I don't know where his his legal standing is these days, what kind of paper uh, paperwork he has. He has, reject, has. He has rejected a, citizenship in I'm this a, great nation. A legal alien. I was I did a campus tour of Princeton University the other day and, and Chanel Duke, the, the lady taking us around, was talking about the Battle of Princeton and about how at the end she said, and then we won. 
<laughs> I said, yeah, I said, actually, you won. I said, the right guys lost. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm increasingly intrigued by religious nationalism. And a, a lot of that conversation has surfaced in the last, oh, 15, 18, 24 months over the Trump candidacy and then presidency. But to be able to distinguish a nation and its purposes, its ends, its goals from the church, I think is really important. I think that's something that Machen, that Machen taught me. And I still think you can see that in his works. I mean, you know, in addition to then his just clarity of expression, his uh, courage in defending the faith, and I think oftentimes his astute observations about problems that come up in churches or the way we formulate Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. And and as a pastor, it's I get a lot of satisfaction out of the fact that when people uh, in my church finally get a copy of Christianity and liberalism and read it, one of the things that, that I always hear is some version of, wow, this could have been written yesterday. I know. Uh, it remains so relevant. And so it's fun as a pastor to see people read him and still benefit from him as being entirely relevant. They don't give you a hard time, though, about those footnotes in the introduction about the um, the language laws, the lust laws. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I mean, there is an example of some of Machen's political concerns right. even in in that book right. in the introduction. It's a funny thing. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you something, Daryl, that doesn't often come up, I find, in discussions of Machen, but I know that you have, have opinions on this. It's something I think that's been lost because Machen has become this iconic hero of fundamentalism or, or whatever in the way he's been received in the tradition. But Machen and missions, the formation of the Independent Mission Board is a critical moment in, in the Machen story. And I think people forget that this was clearly a man with a passion for, for Christian missions. I wonder if you could fill in some of the blanks for us there. Uh, sure. So in 19... Well, 1929, Princeton was reorganized, Westminster started, and there was sort of a threat that the Presbyterian Church gave to conservatives that you better sort of um, shut up or else. Mm-hmm. And and then along comes the layman's report on foreign missions, which was sponsored by Rockefeller Money and I think the Rockefeller Foundation, as well as about seven or eight denominations. The report was written by William Hawking who was a philosopher at Harvard University, of all things. You don't think of Harvard University philosophers writing reports on missions, <laughs> but that was the nature of the Protestant establishment then. And basically the report argued that the older rationale for missions was no longer in place, that saving people from hell wasn't as important as either extending Western civilization or West, Western economics or science and education. Those were things that missionaries should be involved in. Of course, they already were, but there was still underneath that older Protestant effort also an idea of trying to win people to Christ. And so this report comes out, and Machen was really surprised about how badly the Presbyterian Church responded to it, at least parts of it, especially the missions board. And so that led to his effort to try to get the church to take a stand, and eventually it would not. So he went ahead and founded the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. Now, I I can't say that, that Machen was, say, a guy who was 
corresponding with missionaries from Africa or China throughout his life. I mean, he may have been, and I just didn't notice where the, the postage marks or something. He was very involved in sending Princeton students up to Canada, which is kind of foreign, um, <laughs> and making, making oh, sure they, they I hope my pastor's listening. up there. Yeah. <laughs> Canada, that's um, a tough, that's but, a tough But uh, he, he did clearly have an interest in the gospel and that the gospel remains central to the task of foreign missions. And it was clear that this report had exposed that the Presbyterian officials, at least responsible for missions, were not as clear on that as they needed to be. So he took the unprecedented step of establishing an independent board for Presbyterian foreign missions. So you have independency and Presbyterianism together. We still have independent Presbyterian churches in places like Savannah and I guess maybe Memphis, that those things still do exist. But um, Machen's taken a lot of flack for not being a good Presbyterian and establishing an independent board, but it it didn't seem like he had many alternatives. Right, right. Um, and of course, he may have had a hidden agenda or not so hidden agenda of eventually provoking the church to do something ab- about him, which they did. It led to a trial. There was a, a, a oh some kind of statement in 1934 by the General Assembly that basically made the independent board illegal, and that gave them the grounds to bring Machen to trial, which happened in 1935. Yeah. And a, a verdict of guilty held up in 1936, which led to the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. should add that my good friend John Master is a direct descendant of the man who helped stitch Machen up. Oh, really? Oh, He's going right. to be on the show uh, yeah. in a few weeks' time. So generational wow. guilt there. Yeah, and John huh? now yeah. attends Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Amber, <laughs> where we make him do ritual penance for the <laughs> sins of his ancestors. Okay, so so as we're thinking about Presbyterianism, I, I just I've got to ask you your opinion on this. What is it? I'm a pastor in the PCA. What is it about Presbyterianism that so many of us in the PCA don't seem to like? Ah, oh, boy. I, I mean, it's, it's, I think Presbyterianism is kind of dull. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 but it, it, it also, okay. So it, it involves a lot of meetings. Um, mm-hmm. The joke I often make is that Presbyterians should love football because after every play, there's a meeting. Uh, <laughs> and if you don't like to go to meetings, session, Presbytery, general assembly, then Presbyterianism isn't cut out for you. But I think that those meetings, and I'm not a meeting guy myself, but those those meetings are good for at least keeping an eye on what's going on in the churches for giving oversight. And I also think for whatever reason, the Westminster standards and the confessions of the Reformation era are not as hot as maybe they, they once were. Presbyterian worship typically is sort of dull, mm-hmm. or at least traditional, right. whatever that means, Presbyterian worship. And But the odd thing is, is that of course, Presbyterianism seems to be a better brand than being Baptist. You're a little bit higher up socioeconomic ladder. That's why Todd um, made the switch. That's right. <laughs> so, and I guess it's better to have that brand than even being a megachurch, I guess. I, but I, I don't, sometimes I don't know why some younger men who go into, and I think this is true somewhat in the OPC as well, but I think the PCA may suffer from it more, why some men go into it other than... I mean, I, I don't want to, I could go into motives, um, but I mean, I mean, Presbyterianism also does wind up giving you structures that do give you money for church plants. And so there's more apparatus and support going on in Presbyterianism than in, say, uh, a Baptist or independent context, which I think is also a, a good thing. I mean, I think 
that kind of collaboration is very useful. But actually just kind of being vanilla Presbyterian, I don't know if that's enough to get get people's engines running. And I, 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 that's the best I can do. Yeah. <laughs> My theory is that when PCA was, PCA still is growing some, but when it was really growing back in the late 90s and, and into the early 2000s, it was because you had a lot of, like myself, Southern Baptists who had become convinced of the doctrines of grace and thought Tim Keller was really cool, jump into Presbyterianism without actually having any affection for Presbyterianism at all. They just believed the doctrines of grace and thought Keller was awesome. And then you get into a Presbyterian denomination and realize there's actually a lot of meetings and a lot of structure and a a lot of things that a lot of these fellows just don't have any patience for. The other thing, I mean, I think that's right. But the other thing I also think about, and and this is something Carl may want to comment on, um, but when I was coming into the Reformed world in the 70s and 80s, it looked to me like Calvinism was ascendant and there was a kind of a reassurance that someone could take from the achievements of the Reformation. Of course, we're at the 500th anniversary now. It'll be interesting to see if that that narrative in any way comes back. But I think that narrative has been on the ropes in some way mm-hmm. because modernity is now, we regard it now as more as a bad thing and we're yeah. suffering from the effects of it. But also there was all that talk of reform world and life view, the Kuyperians, the neo-Calvinists mm-hmm. were doing a lot of interesting things. People like Marsden and Walterstorff and Plantinga were hot academics. And it seemed like there was a lot of energy there. And now at places here like Hillsdale, the energy is actually in Roman Catholic directions. And Pope John Paul II did a lot to change the dynamics, it seems. But that reassuring narrative of the Reformation and Calvinism, and even, you know, the kind of Puritan origins of America, which I don't entirely buy, but um, that seemed to be important. And Francis Schaeffer out there talking about the importance of, you know, what Supreme Court decisions and the law and Rutherford and and the like, that was all part of my um, young adulthood. And that yeah. seems to people aren't excited about those things anymore. Right. right. Well, um, I mean, we could go on and on about this. I'd encourage you to check out Daryl Hart's uh, books. We very much encourage you to get your hands on Defending the Faith, J. Gresham Machen and the Crisis of Conservative Protestantism in, in Modern America. It's an excellent, not strictly a biography of Machen, but really focusing on those years of conflict for which he is so uh, well known. It's an excellent book. It's a fun read as well. Daryl, thanks so much for... Sure, uh, but for, before we go, if I yeah. just ask one question, I Please, mean, I'm just no. curious, though, um, I know it's your show, you're driving, <laughs> but, um, but I'm curious, Carl, what you think. I mean, you, especially you are involved in, in first thing circles and so yeah. the Roman Catholic mm, yeah. world. By the way, I met Rusty Reno's dad at in Baltimore over the weekend. He was at the Saturday Night Club. Reno's family were the Machen family lawyers. Wow. Oh, wow. But I wonder what you think of how the, the, the Protestant... Reformation narrative is faring? Uh, not well. <laughs> okay. I think Brad Gregory's book from a few years ago, The Unintended Reformation, is an excellent scholarly summary of the of the critique of Protestantism vis-a-vis modernity. I, I think there are serious problems with Gregory's uh, analysis, and I don't think, to me, this sounds very geeky, but the 14th, 15th century kill Roman Catholicism for me. They demonstrate the historical incoherence of, of the papacy. 
But I'm not sure that what we have as Protestants is proving a, a more robust position to hold at this at this particular moment in time. Right. Some of it, I think, can be addressed by going back and looking in detail at the texts. For example, Luther is not a he's not always a radical nominalist. There's a realism in Luther as well, philosophically. But I think on a whole, the macro narrative of Protestantism leading to progress and leading to to the wonders of the modern world, it's a more ambiguous narrative than Protestants have typically cared to make it. So I hope that ultimately the position will be that Protestantism is seen as on the whole a good thing but not perhaps as good as as we once thought in terms of its social consequences. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, and I've only seen a couple of clips from the PBS show. Mm. Kudos. Uh, but, <laughs> but did that, what was the narrative like in that, do you think? I've not yet seen, <laughs> seen okay. it, so I, I don't know. I suspect looking at the people they had involved, it, to some extent it witnesses the the lack of true intellectual engagement of the conservative evangelical world with the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think John Warwick Montgomery was there. Well, I really think of him as a Lutheran. Yeah. There was myself as conservative Presbyterian. But by and large, the other figures who are being interviewed are not people you would associate with the conservative Protestantism, as far as I could see. And I do think that the Brad Gregory narrative has exposed the, the intellectual and historical superficiality of a lot of Protestant social thinking. Right. And and then meanwhile, it seems to me, too, the whatever you make of the new Calvinists, the young, restless and reformed, I mean, they their narrative really starts with Edwards, it seems. So yeah, yeah. it doesn't really get you to the Reformation. No, so. not at all. Um, well, Daryl, I'm going to take the show back, but I did want to <laughs> I, I, I did want to say just piggybacking on what Carl shared and kind of connected to some of your questions. Amy Bird is going to see Pat Benatar this evening. So there's, oh, wow. uh, yeah, so <laughs> wow. we're, we're excited about that. Yeah. Pat Benatar is still alive? She she's is. She's like 62 or she, something. She's on a walker, but she gets around that she stage, still bless rock. her heart. I'll, I'll yeah. let you know. Hey, Black Sabbath is still too. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest has been Daryl Hart. We do have a special gift for those who would uh, come to our website, mortificationofspin.org. We're going to be giving away some copies of his wonderful book, Defending the Faith, J. Gresham Machen and the Crisis of Conservative Protestantism in Modern America. It's an excellent book, and we encourage you to come to our website and register to win a free copy of that book. And also, while you're there, make a financial contribution to this. Somebody's got to pay for that Mercedes lease for Carl. So if you could do that, we would so much appreciate that so that we continue to do that. Once again, special thanks to our guest, Daryl Hart, and we will see you all next time. like a butterfly In matters of the clock he is as fickle as can be Cause he's an Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... It's always very sad to hear about people who've been badly treated by churches. Right, absolutely. And walk away. I mean, the first thing to say is that that's 
that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Churches should not be those that, that do damage to people in such a way. You know, the hat maker thing is a complete false dichotomy. It is saying that instead of receiving the word preached, we're going to serve instead, as though yeah. as though those are competing. Yeah. When our default is always to look to ourselves, and yeah. we're called out of that every Sunday. Mm-hmm. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Should we go into whether women should teach in Sunday school? Yeah. <laughs> and then yoga. Then we'll yoga. talk about I, yoga. I want to know about yoga no, as I'm well. I'm saying this in part because, Amy, we're actually using, at my instigation, I'll take credit, we're using your book on women's ministries and whatnot. Oh. In, Get out. Uh, our, really? Our no little women? School. I've seen it. Daryl oh, holds it up and says, thank this you so much, is where I the slippery that. slope begins. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's a women's group down at John Meathers Church in Oviedo who's using it. and. Man. I was visiting with them, and I thought the book made a lot of points that men need to hear. So, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, I wrote it for men would, as well. I would agree. I and would I agree. finally as much as I hate to over admit Todd's it, I would agree. A yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would never admit that. <laughs> <laughs>